Amen. All right. Everybody has a study sheet. We are on rule number seven. It is the creation factor. The creation factor states this. The invisible eternal truths of God can be enhanced by studying the creation he has made. In other words, God uses physical creation to teach us spiritual truths. Hopefully that will become evident to you by today if you don't fall asleep in the meantime. The key verses that help illustrate this rule, Romans 1.20, it is the top one. For the invisible things of Him, speaking of God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Who's the they here in this passage? If God is speaking to somebody and He wants that person to be without excuse, what do you think the excuse is? I didn't know there was a God. I didn't know I was going to be held accountable for my sin one day. Context of this passage that we looked at a couple weeks ago, or a couple months ago, I guess now, is talking about those who might live in the bushes of Africa or in uh, lands that have not been uh, charted by a missionary, or even just people who have never been churched. It doesn't matter. The Bible says that God has used things in creation to speak to humanity, to let them know that He does exist. More on that in a little bit. Psalm 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare. To declare something means you are speaking. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. But check out this passage in Job chapter 12. But ask now the beasts, and they shall teach thee. And the fowls of the air. See, it's not just the mountains, the sky, the sun, the stars. No, we're even getting down to animals that shall teach you. The fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee, or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee, and the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee, Who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this, in whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Check out this paragraph that's on your outline. Creation is referred to as God's general revelation. General revelation. It's a general revelation of himself because anyone, anywhere, can see the evidence of God in it. That's the entire point of Romans chapter 1. And that's why God has it in the very first chapter of the book where he is declaring the righteousness of God. God created everything after the pattern of himself, and therefore no one can make the excuse that they did not and could not know about God. The Bible is referred to as God's special revelation because it is written for those who want to know more about the God of creation and his great plans and purposes for mankind. Therefore, creation and the Bible will always work together to proclaim the truths of God. This has happened time and time and time again throughout history. You even hear about it with guys like and missionaries like David Livingstone. How he is a medical doctor who leaves his practice in England to go to the heart of Africa to be a missionary. And when he gets there, what does he find out? He takes the Bible with him and he takes it to a group of people who have never seen a white man before, never heard of the name Jesus Christ, never seen a Bible before. And as he's opening up the scriptures, the special revelation that tells about who Jesus Christ is, he would hear things from these people talking about how you realize 
that we have been praying that this great almighty power, this great almighty being would send somebody to us so that we would know who created the sun, who created the stars, who created the river, who created the rocks. Because so many of us were worshiping these things and then it dawned on us one day, well, you guys are worshiping all of those. I want to worship the one who created all of those. And they would lift up their hands to the sky because they had this great sun where they knew all the source of life came from the only sun in the sky. And they would cry out in prayer, please reveal yourself to us. Who are you? General revelation and special revelation go hand in hand. Creation and the Bible go hand in hand. Countless times God has used that for the testimonies of reaching out to whole tribes of people. And so... Because we're looking at creation, and even just that passage in Romans chapter 1, look again at the very top of your sheet there, Romans 1.20, where it says the invisible things of Him, the spiritual truths of God and of the Bible, they're in creation. It says even His eternal power and Godhead. Anybody remember from a couple weeks ago when we talked about that, what is Godhead a word for? What was that? It's the Trinity. It's the Trinity. Because the word Trinity is not found in your Bible. I don't know if you realize that or not, but don't freak out about that because the word rapture is not in it either. But the rapture is in the Bible. And the Trinity is in the Bible. And here it's just called the Godhead. And so the Trinity, God is a Father, the Son, and a Spirit. They are three, yet they're one. They're all one God. And so because God is a Trinity, it is interesting to note that everything physical in creation will always, always, always break down into threes. Don't believe me? Check out your outline. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. I don't know if this has come up in another class you've had. But look at all of these things here. You know that an atom is made up of a proton, neutron, and an electron? Three, but it's one atom. The human race... You can trace this back to Genesis chapter 9 with Noah and his three boys. Ham went down south to Africa. Japheth went west, became the Caucasians. And Shem went east. And that's where you get the Asian race. All the human race, every other race can be whittled down to those three. Humans, each human being has a body, a soul, and a spirit. Albeit a dead one but they still have a spirit. Time. You break time down into three components. Past, present, future. Hours, minutes, seconds. Morning, afternoon, night. Countries. You have the Eastern, Western, Third World. Color. You have red, blue, and yellow. How about that? What do we call that for the art people in here? They're primary colors. You make every other color on the spectrum from mixing these three. <coughs> Not together, because then you'll get black. Every other color is from these three. That's why they're called the primary colors. The earth itself, you have the land, sea, and air. All matter is solid, liquid, and gas. Space is height, width, and depth. In the kingdoms, you have the animal kingdom, the vegetable kingdom, and the mineral kingdom. All of reality is space, time, and matter. Electricity. Positive, negative, and neutral. No other kind. Water is two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. With a fire, if you want to have a fire, you can't have it without fuel, oxygen, and a spark. We talked about this 
Last week, heaven. There are three heavens. The earth's atmosphere, outer space, and then the throne of God. The skin is the dermis, the epidermis, and the hypodermis. Planet Earth itself is crust, mantle, and core. Teeth, you have enamel, dentin, and roots. Light, you have heat rays, x-rays, visible rays. Hair is a cuticle, a cortex, and medulla. Plants, you have stem, roots, and leaves. Books, you have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Education, elementary, middle, and high school. And you also, for college, have bachelor's, master's, and doctorate. Check out this one. I like this one. The most basic and the most important form of government. The government that works best breaks down into three. A legislative body, an executive body, and a judicial body. Isaiah 33, 22. Is that on your study sheet at all, by the way? If not, write it. Check out this verse. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. All right, class. The Lord is our judge. What branch is that? Good job. The Lord is our lawgiver. Wait, what? Okay. Did somebody... What did you say? I meant legislative. I swear. What did you say? Nothing. What did you say, Kendall May? Legislative. No, you didn't. Oh, I did not. What'd she say? <laughs> Hannah, what'd she say? Legislative. Yeah. <laughs> Liars. <laughs> the Lord is our king. What one is that? <laughs> Kendall, only you can answer that one. Which one is it? All right, good job. Good job. The music breaks down a soprano, alto, and tenor. The family unit is a father and mother and children. Children are lumped in there. That's not true. I have seven people in my family. No. Ah, I like this one. Levers. Do you know that all levers have a fulcrum, a load, and effort? And not only that, there's actually three classes of levers that we use. Check it out. So here. What's that? Are you sure you don't want to share with the rest of the class? Oh, you're awake now? Okay, good. You have load, fulcrum, and effort. Fulcrum, load, effort. Load, effort, fulcrum. And here's some examples of all three classes to your right. Look at all these things. Where would we be if we didn't have some of these things in our lives? Like a fishing rod. I hate fishing. What? I'd rather shoot it. <laughs> but some of these tools that are here... Think about all you're able to do, and they all have three components to them. Not only that, laws of motion. You have the law of inertia, you have force, and you have every action that has an equal and opposite reaction. Those are the laws of motion. How about this? Do you know that the strongest shape possible is a triangle? Don't believe me? Check out this. These are bridges. Note how many triangles are there because they have an equal amount of force no matter how much load you put on it. It is the most stable. Do I have something else after that? No, I don't. Triangles. They're used to build bridges, stadiums, and even houses. All right, top of page two. Told you guys this would go quick. 
I know. What about a diamond? What about a diamond? Like a square turn. A rhombus? No, because it'll eventually uh, fall on itself. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I looked it up when I was doing this. You can Google it too. Have I tested it? Have you, te you tested it? All right. So examples of creation enhancing God's truth. In a little bit here, I'm going to have you guys break up into groups of three. Sorry, no foursies. Only threes. <gasps> because of creation! I totally didn't even plan that! Uh, <laughs> I didn't. I really just thought of that. You guys are breaking up into groups of threes. If there's anybody left over, sorry you missed the boat. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, Hannah, I'm not that smart. <laughs> I'm not that smart. Examples of creation enhancing God's truth. Before I have you guys break up and work on these yourselves, I do want to take you through two examples to kind of show you why this is significant and to show you how this can really take Bible study to the next level to be really, really fun. So first off, we're going to look at the two down on trees. Turn over to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. So you guys see the created object on the left column there, then you have the passages of Scripture in the middle, and then you have a blank column for the third column. Thank you, Jack. Thank you. I was looking for a standing ovation, but I'll take a round of applause. <laughs> you have a third column where it's the spiritual truth that is taught. What is God revealing through creation in these passages and with this created object that he mentions here? So obviously with Psalm 1, we're talking about trees. And in the very first psalm, and the very first three verses of the psalm, oh, this is just too good now. Here's what he mentions. Verse 1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. You want to be blessed? I mean, do you want God's hand upon your life? I would presume that everyone in here would say yes, even though half of you might be asleep right now. But there comes a caveat with that. If you really want to be blessed, then you know what you're going to do? You're not going to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. You're not going to be with ungodly people constantly, and you're not going to take their advice on how to live your life. You're not going to be so invested with them that you end up being like them. Nor are you going to stand in the way of sinners, nor are you going to sit in the seat of the scornful. But you know what your delight is going to be in, and you know how you'll be blessed? When you're in the Word of God, and when you're thinking about the Word of God constantly, and when you're letting the Word of God penetrate your heart and your mind and your soul and every aspect of your life, that's how you'll be blessed. If you want God's hand upon your life, don't be with these people and be in God's Word. Very first psalm. That's what he mentions. And he, verse 3, shall be like a, what? Tree. Planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither. And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Huh. So he says that a man will be like a tree. Now you might just stop there and be like, oh, okay, cool. 
Well, but look what he's saying about that tree. Look what he's saying about that man. You will bring forth fruit. Can somebody simplify in very simple terms what Jesus Christ said is how we'll prove that we are his disciples if we bear what? Fruit. fruit. And then much fruit. We talked about fruit on Wednesday night. All kidding aside, no, I don't plan for these rules to go along with what we just cover on Wednesday night, but it is kind of funny how we mentioned that. Must be that God is really wanting to hammer that. Do you have fruit in your life? Maybe it's because you're in the way of the scornful. Maybe it's because you're sitting down with sinners and you're taking their counsel and you're not in the law of God. You're not delighting yourself in the law of God. Maybe that's why there's no fruit. And maybe that's why you're not blessing and pleasing God. His leaf also shall not wither. You feel withered away? I usually did. Actually, not this time of year. Around winter time. That's where, man, hope you guys are blessed when you have a winter camp because we never did midway through your year to be refreshed when you're feeling like you're withering away, when it feels like you're so far away from your camp commitments that you don't even remember what it was you put on that paper. His leaf also shall not wither. And whatsoever he doeth shall what? prosper. Do you want to be prosperous in your walk? Do you want to get to the judgment seat of Christ, stand before God and have him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And you have a prosperous amount of crowns that are before you that you have been crowned with that you can then cast back to him at his feet. Then you better be like a tree. Not just a friendly VBS song anymore, is it? But it's the essence of your very walk with God. So as if that wasn't enough to kind of tell you what it is, then you have this passage. Christ heals the blind man. What's the first thing he sees? He looked up and said, I see men as what? Trees walking. So what's the spiritual truth you get from when you study out a tree? Trees are a picture of who? Say it. Men. Man. Mankind. So women, too. Just to clarify. Now, you might be thinking, oh, cool. Neato. But again, what does that have to do with me? Well, again, you look at a verse like 1, 2, and 3, and you help make those devotional applications to yourself. But then as you're reading, like let's say Psalm 104, which is where everyone should turn right now. You're reading and you might come across one of those verses that previously you had just completely skipped over because you're like, what the heck does that even mean? That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. I've never even heard that taught before. That never gets brought up in any messages. So what's even the point? And instead of stopping and studying it, you just decide to move on to the next verse and then you completely forget about it. Instead, maybe what you should do is stop Collaborate and listen. I don't know why. Thank you. I don't know why that popped in my head. You stop and you actually decide to study it out. But you come across a verse like verse 16. Give me a reader for that. Dustin, verse 16. It's after 15 before 17. The trees of the Lord are full of sap. The cedars of the Lebanon, Lebanon, Lebanon which hath, he hath planted. Yeah. 
What a great deep doctrinal verse. Talking about the majesty of the gospel. No, it's not. But do you see what I mean? How easy is it for a verse like that? You just skip right over when you're reading. But now you know something. You just unlocked a key of Bible study where you know that trees are a picture of men. And he says here, the trees of the Lord. So if trees are like men, he's saying you're the men of the Lord. Who would men of the Lord be? Christians. Christians. He says the trees of the Lord are full of sap. What that should cause you to do is to stop and meditate. Start thinking. Do you see why I mentioned to you guys several times over, don't be so concerned with getting your chapter a day in? Because sometimes God will throw a verse like this into your Bible reading where you're like, I don't, he's like, I don't want you to go on the rest of the chapter. Just stop here and just ponder this. A tree that's full of sap. What do you guys know about sap? Sure. <laughs> let's let's think more uh, uh, with the tree. You do get okay. I guess yeah, that, that works. You do get syrup from it. Does taste good. Anybody ever come across the twig or branch and you try to break it? But it doesn't break. It doesn't break. It just bends. Why is that? Because it's full of sap. So you think about that. The trees of the Lord are to be flexible. So that when a storm comes and you see twigs all over on the ground, which by the way, any twig or any branch that gets knocked off, it's because it's dead. There's no life in it. That's the reason why it can't withstand the storm that comes. When a storm comes, that tree that's full of sap, it's not going to break. It's going to weather the storm. It's going to bend with it, but not break. It's going to stand strong because it's full of sap. It's flexible. I'll never forget this. Well, I remember one time there was an ice storm. And uh, I don't know if you guys know Dave Peters. He was uh, driving by. I remember he shared the story. I can't remember where it was. He was driving by. Uh, after this ice storm had hit and he drove by a whole bunch of uh, whatever trees that are typically loaded with sap. I'm not a really a creation lover, but whatever that tree is. And he noticed that these trees were almost just completely from the weight of the ice, they were bowed over. It almost looked like they bowed down and were praying. And he's like, they were trees that were full of sap. They didn't break. Yeah, they were weighed down with a heavy weight. But you know what that weight did? It just caused them to bow down before the only son. What a picture of a Christian. That when the storms start rising up against them, they don't easily break. They don't easily wither. And even when there's a heavy weight upon them, they don't break. It just causes them to bow down and to seek help from their creator. There's a lot you can unpack just from that simple verse that's so easy to skip over during Bible reading. Yeah, any other takeaways? Those of you guys who know about trees or anything like that? Anything you know about trees that you could illuminate us with? I'm limited on my tree knowledge. All right, let's move on to the next one. Jump down uh, towards the end. You guys see ants? 
I like this one. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. Why does this matter? Why does this stuff matter? Well, coincidentally, we're in Proverbs chapter 30, and verse 5 is a key verse that every single one of you guys ought to be familiar with. It should be something that comes up regularly whenever you feel like your faith or the Bible is being challenged or tested. Why believe the Bible? Well, verse 5 says, Every word of God is pure. That means that every single word that's in your Bible was placed there for a reason. So if God starts talking about ants, there's a reason for it. Ants are very, very crucial. Look at uh, verse 24 to 25. He says, There are four things which are little upon the earth, but they are exceeding wise. So they're little in stature. You might even look at them and say, that's weak. You might even look at that and say, man, what on earth could that thing possibly do of any validity whatsoever? Well, even though it's little, it doesn't matter to God. He's able to use that. Verse 25. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. So when you see a verse like this, it should cause you to stop and be like, well, let me start looking into some ants here. What is it about ants that as I look at them, or even just having a base knowledge, you don't even need to get on Google and start looking some stuff up, even though I did because I was curious. You don't even have to go through all this stuff. You just look at how, what you know about ants in the most rudimentary, basic stuff, and what is it you come away with with ants? For me, when I did this whole thing, well, just look at what the Bible says. Uh, they are weak and not strong. But I'll tell you what, if they're preparing their meat in the summertime, when harvest comes, and there's no other food to be gathered... I would say that makes them pretty strong, wouldn't you? But they're weak. They're small. And the Bible even says they're not strong. Well, if they have meat when nobody else has meat, that means they're strong. They're weak, but strong. And that reminds me of 1 Corinthians 1, 26-27. Because even Paul is saying, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty strong. Not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, those who are wise in their own conceits, the Bible talks about. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world, the seemingly weak, the apparently weak, to confound the things which are mighty. You know what that's telling you? You are weak. You're not wise. But I'll tell you what, you open up this book and you do what it says, you will be wise and strong. You'll be like an ant. You'll gather meat. Hmm, that's funny. John 4.4, 4, or Matthew 4.4 4 rather, and John, uh, or Luke 4.4, 4, when Satan is tempting Christ, he says, turn these stones into bread. And what does Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And then in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And in 
1 Peter chapter 2, and as we'll see here in a little bit, Hebrews chapter 5, uh, the Bible is also compared to as meat. And it's also compared to as milk. And it's also compared to as honey. Man, ants are gathering their meat. We ought to be gathering our food source. So that even though we're weak, and when we are weak, we gather this now. When the harvest comes, picture of the rapture, we won't have anything that we're lacking. Because we will have our meat when the harvest comes, and we'll be strong, and we'll be able to stand before our king, not ashamed, because we did what he asked us to do. Hmm. You know what else is interesting? As you start studying out ants, even if you just do a simple Google search, you'll find army ants. You know what army ants do? It says here in this little article, there's a reason why army ants are named that way. They are overly aggressive and nomadic in nature. That means they're constantly moving around. They don't have a home. They're nomadic in nature that indiscriminately kills their prey with their massive number. Army ants are also known as driving ants, legionary ants, or visiting ants because they do not stay in one place for a long time. They are what we call nomadic. Move from one location to another, wiping everything in their path. You know, we were just talking on Wednesday night about bringing down strongholds in our life, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We are fighting a spiritual warfare, and the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God. You're in a spiritual fight, and you do have spiritual enemies, and you know what you need to do? You need to be aggressive, and you need to wipe out every single spiritual enemy you have in your path. That starts up here in the mind. And you need to be aggressive with it. The moment that sin pops in your mind, slay it. Mortify the deeds of your body. Put off, as Colossians 3 talks about. But not only that, army ants being nomadic in nature. You know what army ants, what they're like? They don't have a home. They don't get too comfortable in one spot. They're not building their kingdom here. They're strangers and pilgrims. As 1 Peter 2.11 says, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly, fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. That's why you've got to mortify them. You've got to slay them aggressively. Because no man that warth entangle himself with the affairs of this life, again, another call back to Wednesday, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier army ant. You're nomadic. We should constantly be on the move because God is on the move, on the move. Hallelujah. We ought to be on the move. We should not be making this place our home. We ought to be nomadic as well. You know what else you find out about ants? You realize that they've colonized just about every single landmass on the face of the planet, with the exception of like Antarctica and a few of the islands. They've colonized. What is a colony? What does it mean to colonize? That's got a negative connotation these days means you go to another territory and you assimilate or make the people that are there assimilate to the culture that you're bringing. That's where the negative part of it comes in. But really when you think about the most fundamental basic element of colonizing, 
it's taking what you have to another land and instilling it into that land. That's discipleship. That's missions. Hmm. Ants. The ants are a people. Not strong. Yet they prepare their meat in the summer. Interesting. They colonize just about every landmass. You know that Acts 19.10 says that at that point in history, the entire known world had heard the gospel because the disciples and the apostles colonized. They took what they had and they invested it in other lands. Hmm. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 6. That's not the only place that God mentions ants. Look at verse 6. He says, Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Boy, what a contrast there. An ant versus a slug. If you wanted to take this to the next level, just study slugs. And then see what the Bible has to say about sluggards in the book of Proverbs. You'll have some comparing and contrasting there. Consider her ways and be wise. In other words, you can learn from studying an ant, from looking at what, how God made that ant to be, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. You know what else you'll find when you just take the tools that are available to you and study out ants? You'll find answer disciple makers. This article is from 2006. I found this back in 2017. Ants are the first non-humans to teach, study says. The ants are tiny. That's straight out of Proverbs. And usually nest between rocks in the south coast of England, transformed into research subjects at the University of Bristol. They raced along a tabletop foraging for food and then, remarkably, returned to guide others to food. Time and again, followers trailed behind leaders, darting this way and that along the route, presumably to memorize landmarks. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that we are not to remove the ancient landmarks. It's a picture of church history. Once a follower got its bearings, it tapped the leader with its antenna, prompting the lesson to literally proceed to the next step. You know, at the end of each lesson of discipleship, we have little tests to see, is the disciple ready for the next step? The ants were only looking for food, but the researchers said the careful way the leaders led followers, thereby turning them into leaders in their own right. What does 2 Timothy 2, 2 say? That you guys are to teach faithful men who are able also to teach others also. I threw in an extra also. Turning them into leaders in their own right. Hmm. Marks the, uh, whatever that ant is called, and as the very first example of a non-human animal exhibiting teaching behavior. Within the field of animal behavior, we would say an animal is a teacher if it modifies behavior in the presence of another at cost to itself. Is discipleship not costly? Jesus said, if any man follow after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, so another individual can learn more quickly. Uh... Few more things. The ants appeared to follow pedagogical techniques that good human teachers have used for centuries. The lesson was highly interactive and proceeded at a pace set by the followers. If the gap between the leader and follower increased too much, the leader slowed down. Some of you guys have had discipleship put on hold because the gap was too far. 
If it was too close, the leader accelerated. Tandem running is an example of teaching. To our knowledge, the first in a non-human animal that involves bi-directional feedback between teacher and pupil. Franks responded by saying that the two-way communication between the ants was quite different than merely sounding an alarm about a predator. He added, the follower ant often did not use the same direct route on its return trip. Once led to food, ants found new paths back to the nest. In other words, they were making personal devotional applications. They were putting things in their own words. They were finding their own food. They didn't have need for someone else to show them again. Once led to food, ants found new paths back, and those paths were sometimes more direct than the route the leaders had shown them. In other words, Frank said, the teaching appeared to give follower ants more than just information. It generally increased their knowledge of the foraging environment. That study was done back in 2007. God made them to be disciple makers. After he told us, go to the ant, consider her ways. Now you might be thinking verse 7 is a contradiction. That which have no guide, overseer, or ruler, they go after their meat. But if you were, write down Hebrews 5.12 next to that. And check that passage out later. You know what Hebrews 5.12 is saying? Paul is issuing a rebuke to certain Christians, or Christians, whatever that guy's a Christian, <laughs> To certain Christians, he's issuing a rebuke saying, hey, you know what? You're at a point in your life, you're at a point in your walk where you ought to be able to eat strong meat. You ought to be teachers yourselves, he said, because you've been walking with God for long enough. But, he said, instead, you have need that another teach you again. The point of discipleship is not that when you're done with discipleship, somebody has to come back to you and teach you all over again. The point of discipleship is that you should be at a spot where you're able to gather your own food and you don't have a need of somebody to hold your hand anymore. But yet many Christians, that ends up being the case for them. And that's why God says, go to the ant, thou sluggard, because they're not willing to put forth the work to add to their faith knowledge through studying the Bible like we've been commanded to do. You know what's interesting? There's a little thing called fire ants. We'll do this one minute video, then we're going to break off here. But check out fire ants. Here's a little something about them. They create complex structures out of their own bodies. Sometimes they act like a solid. Sometimes they flow like a liquid. I know the words are up there, but I'm narrating for the podcast. They can build tall towers. And they don't crush the people that are below them. They work together, in other words. Hmm. They just know what they're supposed to do. They work together. And if one goes down, they all go down together. Each ant carries an equal load. <gasps> huh. 
You know there's triangles all over the Eiffel Tower. They're protected from storms. Helps them to get out of danger. They need each other in order to get out of danger. They float. They keep their heads above water. They're not drowning like many of you might be right now. Hmm. You can learn a lot by studying ants. Ants need each other. You guys need each other. We're, taught, we're called to build temples. We're called to build upon the foundation that God has laid for us in Ephesians chapter 2. We're to be building structures just like ants are. Not only that, but Romans 15.1 and Galatians 6.2 says that we that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. Hmm. Ants are strong. They don't look strong, but they are strong. We're to build up ourselves, our most holy faith in Jude 20. You learn a lot from looking at ants. A stinking ant. Why would God put any space in the Bible towards an ant? Because a spiritual truth that's taught is that ants are a picture of a Christian worker and a discipler. That's what you're called to be. So consider the ant. All right. So for those of you who have to serve, you got five minutes before you have to be at your class, but we're going to take some time. I want you guys splitting up into groups of threes and go through this list. And we'll come back together and we'll discuss it. Sound good? And break.